0: We are picking up today um, right where we left off last week in our series about Jesus the King in Matthew's account of the life of Jesus and we're in the middle of a series of attacks on Jesus by the the Pharisees the religious leaders of the day there's a little trilogy and this is the the final part last time out they'd accused him of working miracles by demonic power not for being from God, not doing things for God, but instead being anti-God. And now as we join back into to Matthew's account, we find them some more of these Pharisees, these religious leaders, coming with a, a request. And we're going to see Jesus teaches us three lessons in response. A history lesson, a heart lesson, and then a hopeful lesson. But it's not school. So anybody who's broken out in cold sweat at the thought of lessons. We're still in church. It's okay. Let's get right into it. I don't know how many of you were watching the rugby yesterday. I don't know how many of you started watching the rugby with a sense of real hope. This is going to be great. We're going to smash the Welsh in their own backyard. Maybe you are Welsh and watching with a different perspective. But sometimes what we expect... And what we get are very different things. As any of you would have seen if you'd have been in our front room about 7 o'clock yesterday. Utter devastation. The Pharisees come to Jesus. If you've got your Bibles open there in Matthew chapter 12. They come with an expectation and they ask this question. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And they expected... A sign, what they were asking for, is a sign that would affirm that Jesus was from God. In light of what we heard last week, Jesus' logical dismantling of their claim that he was driving out demons with demonic power. They say, show us something that that proves that you're from God. Give us a, a sign, give us a dramatic evidence. And perhaps they were looking back into their own history as a Jewish people and they were thinking back to Moses. Moses, who had been given signs by God to prove that he was sent by God to the Israelites. Now, if we were reading Matthew's, uh, Mark's account or Luke's account, we would know that the Pharisees are coming not with a genuine question. They are anti-Jesus. And yet still, the words that they are using, they are expecting Jesus to fail to provide a sign that proves That he is from God. At least verbally. That's what they're expecting. But instead. Jesus gives them the reality. Here's what he says. Look down at verse 39. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. But none will be given it. Except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus says the only sign you're going to get. Is one that affirms that you do not believe the sign of Jonah, a sign of judgment, of a man coming to preach to you having been subsumed by darkness for three days and three nights. Verse 40, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I wonder what they thought that meant. Now, we meet and we know the end of the story. We know where Jesus is going. We know that he's going to die. He'll be buried on a Friday and then on the Sunday he will be raised to new life. But, but what would they have thought? Maybe they were just, in their minds, just chalked it up as, oh, that's one of those weird things that Jesus says that nobody gets. I'm sure they must have thought that from time to time. Jesus is not saying this to encourage them but to convict them. He takes up the theme of Jonah and he says, let me take you, let me take you to a courtroom that one day you will stand in. And let me show you your reality. And so he places the, this generation in front of him in the defendant's box. And he says, this is what it's going to look like. On the day of judgment for you, the prosecution will call witnesses. And the first witness that they will call will be the men of Nineveh. Nineveh was a city that was known and famed for its wickedness. You can read the story in the Old Testament in the book of Jonah. That these men, these men of Nineveh, will stand up. And they will be called by the prosecution because they responded better than the people that Jesus was talking to. So Jonah chapter 3 verse 4 and 5 says this. Jonah, a prophet sent by God with all sorts of mixed up motives. And I'm being positive there. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. And then we read that the king of Nineveh goes even further. He says this, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And here we are in the, the courtroom that Jesus is picturing. Of this current generation that he's speaking to. And the men of Nineveh will stand up and they will say, we repented. When Jonah came to us with this message about God's anger. We repented we changed we turned we believed God and they will look across the courtroom and they will ask of the generation that Jesus is talking to did you turn did you repent and then the prosecutor will say thank you very much men of Nineveh I'm going to call my second witness the Queen of Sheba And in she comes. And the prosecutor says, tell us your story. And we can read this in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 10. The Queen of Sheba, we're told, in verse 1 of 1 Kings 10, when the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon. Solomon, who was the king of Israel, David's son. When she heard about his fame and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard words questions and the Queen of Sheba in the witness box recounts these words this is what I said to King Solomon the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true but I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes indeed not even half was told me in wisdom and wealth you have far exceeded the report I heard How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And the Queen of Sheba looks across our courtroom at this generation that Jesus is speaking to. And she says, I went. I heard about this man, this one sent from God, provided for. And I have heard about his wisdom and I travelled a great distance to find out for myself if it was true, if it was good. And I found it to be far better than I could have even imagined. She came to listen and to learn. Not to speak, not to demand, but to receive. She... Believed in God's king and she looks across the courtroom and she says I believed did you these are the questions the rhetorical questions that Jesus is asking of the Pharisees and we can imagine that the defendants would be silent Repentance, where is yours? Belief, where is yours? And Jesus uses these two examples to shame them. The Pharisees, the Jews of Jews, the most Jewish people you could have find, And he uses Gentiles, non-Jews, to expose them. And expose their lack of repentance and their lack of faith. And Jesus' punchline is this, something greater is here. The way that the prosecutor builds his case on the day of judgment is to say, even these non-Jews who had less evidence and a lesser witness, they repented, they believed. What about you? You see, the Pharisees were expecting signs that approved Moses to the Israelites. But the Exodus story tells us about other signs. Signs that God sent and did as judgment on a hard-hearted king and a hard-hearted people. And Jesus, the judge of all the earth, hands down his judgment on this generation, a wicked and adulterous generation. And so God asks of us, where is your repentance? Where is your belief? Of course, we live on the other side of this sign that jesus says will be given the sign of jonah jesus was in the heart of the earth for three days after he died but then he rose jesus does not even give him that that minor you know small minor detail is jesus from god yeah he died And he was in there on the Friday and on the Saturday and on the Sunday. And then he rose to new life. Will we turn from our wicked ways and hear his message? Will we believe and repent? But Jesus is not done. He continues in verse 43 to 45. And so our second lesson is a heart lesson. In the context of what's been going on. Just flick back to verse 22. You might have to turn over the page of of Matthew 12. Then they brought him to Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. The context of all this is that Jesus has rescued somebody who has been demon-possessed. And Ian Fenton talked about that last week. I'm not going to go over uh, what he said. But Jesus uses that context to talk about the heart. And he talks about an evil spirit that is within somebody. Let's read it again from verse 43. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes it, with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Jesus is not teaching So much about evil spirits here. Although we could take a lot out about what they do and and how they do it. But Jesus is here talking about how the generation in front of him have received some goodness. But it ultimately has done no good. They end in a worse condition than which they started. Let me read to you about what somebody says about this passage. Jesus is talking about a pleasant moral reformation but with the man thinking that he is still in control of himself and with no reference to the spirit of God this man is empty he is open to invasion from all kinds of evil and in fact the original spirit comes back with reinforcements the man who having benefited in God's goodness puts his well what the evil spirit describes as a house in order he tidies up, makes himself seem nice and pretty and better. But the key thing is that he's empty. We put it like this, when it comes to dealing with our issues and our hearts, the word stop is not enough. I'll stop doing this, I'll stop doing that. It's, it's not enough. We can't just stop loving things we ought not to love. We can't just stop going our way. We have to be changed. We have to be filled. And maybe you know the experience of that in your own life. Trying to break habits. Trying to break sins that beset, that stick on us. That we keep coming back to. That our victories against are short and futile. Jesus says that's the fate of the generation that stands before him. So what's the answer? And what has this got to do with the things that he's just been talking about? Well, let's return again to the Queen of Sheba. Back to 1 Kings chapter 10. And listen to the final words of the description of the interaction between the Queen of Sheba and Solomon. 1 Kings 10 verse 13. King Solomon gave the queen of sheba all she desired and asked for besides what he had given her out of his royal bounty as she leaves she is full she is she has been satisfied by God's king She has found him to be more, we read that earlier, than she ever expected. She wasn't even told the half and she has been taken up with all that Solomon has given to her, God's king. And that's what Jesus does through his spirit. He fills us. And satisfies us and puts up a great big no entry sign to sinful desires and forces that would desire to enter us and ruin us. We can't just get rid, we have to fill ourselves. And ultimately we need God to fill us with new desires and new heart. And that's what had not happened with the generation that Jesus was speaking off maybe they had recognized some of their need to change maybe they'd made an attempt maybe some of those that he was talking to had been those that had gone to john the baptist back at the start of matthew and had received a a baptism for repentance of sins and yet now when it comes to jesus they say no i'm not interested i'm offended by you I want nothing to do with you. And so they were empty. And they were ripe for sin to return and take root in their lives in a much, much worse way than before. There was a Scottish minister and theologian called Thomas Charms. And he wrote a sermon, became a book. It was called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he writes about our hearts. Listen to this. Such is the grasping tendency of the human heart that it must have something to lay hold of. And which, if rested away without the substitution of another something in its place, would leave a void and vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the natural system. He says our hearts need something to love. That's how we're made, it's how we function as humans. And we can't get rid of the things that we love that we ought not to unless we replace them with something greater. He goes on, the best way of casting out an impure affection is to admit a pure one. And by the love of what is good to expel the love of what is evil. He said, we know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our hearts than to keep in our hearts the love of God. And he says, we do this by building up our most holy faith. How we see this afternoon, we must be filled with a love for Jesus. And we do that through his word. Through his spirit, applying his word to us. And we do it through worshipping him. Not just on a Sunday together, but also in the rest of our lives. We do it through prayer, seeking him. We do it through repenting of sin, confessing sin. We do it through continually seeking good in all of our lives. And we do it even as David prayed earlier, by keeping our minds and our hearts set on the great and glorious gospel. That we are a people who have been saved by sin through the love of God at work in Christ Jesus. And as we remember that our hearts are filled with love for him and sin therefore seems to be and is seen to be for what it really is, ugly and destructive. How we see it in our clearest moments. Only then can we successfully fight the sinful desires that we still struggle with. Our desires of control, our pride, our arrogance, our lusts, our self-reliance. We must be filled with a love, the love of God. Without being filled with this love of God that we receive through his spirit. We are destined to be, have it said of us, what was said of that generation, a wicked and adulterous generation. But Jesus is not done. There is a third lesson for us. A hopeful lesson. To conclude. It turns out that whilst Jesus has been saying these things... His family have been outside the the house or or venue where he is. And they've turned up and they want to see him. Verse 46. Whilst Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. And they managed to get a messenger through. Jesus, your mother and brothers are here. They want to to speak with you. Now Jesus has a, a somewhat up and down relationship with his biological family. Or it'd be more accurate to say the gospel tellers they have an up and down relationship with him and now they want to seek sp- to speak to him they say look we need to take priority at this point point." and Jesus uses this moment to close out these words of warning with a word of affirmation as the heat is coming on Jesus in his ministry and as that begins to reflect on those that are around him, his disciples. And whilst the warning about repentance is still ringing in the ears of those that are listening, Jesus publicly identifies those who belong to him. Amidst this wicked and adulterous generation, these broad strokes that Jesus has been, uh, has been uh, painting for us, Jesus physically says that they are mine they belong to me opposition to jesus does not make him give up i think if i was looking around and looking at the majority of people and saying this is the accurate truth about all these people they are wicked and adulterous i think i'd give up i think i'd move on to the next town Maybe I'd come back if I was Jesus in a couple hundred years and see if things were a little bit better. But opposition doesn't make Jesus give up. He doesn't lose heart. He doesn't lose focus. It doesn't make him believe that his work is worthless or fruitless. No, he points out that there are those present who even in the smallest amount are demonstrating What this wicked and adulterous generation have not, they are showing repentance and faith. And so Jesus points, look at verse 49, pointing to his disciples. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He said, here is my family. Amidst the great swathes of wickedness, there are those that belong to Jesus. You can imagine the scene. Let's go back to the courtroom where a witness is on the stand and they're asked to say, Who was it? Who did this terrible act? And they, they point at the defendant's block at the defendant's box and they say, It was him. In condemnation. But here Jesus speaks not in condemnation. He doesn't point in condemnation. He says I'm going to point in commendation. They are mine. They are my family. And when he says that they do the will of the Father. It becomes clear as we jump into chapter 13 next week. But that doesn't initiate with them. That they've been given a gift, they've been given the gift of faith or the secrets of the kingdom of heaven as we'll see next week. But that faith they have taken and they have followed Jesus. They have repented and they have believed and now they belong. Jesus says to us this afternoon, if we are those that are following Jesus, you are mine. You are my family. You belong to me. Can you imagine how the disciples felt? I think one word sums it up. They would have been affirmed. They would have had that warm feeling within them. Just as we belong. He knows us. He loves us. He sees us. And that affirmation is crucial for us. It is the fruit of the gospel as we head back out from here into our lives, into our worlds. As we head back out to parents and to work and to love and to serve. As we face the, the difficulties that will come that may be already here. Jesus affirms us and says, they belong to me. We are part. Of Jesus' family. And that's what we need to hold on to in our hearts as we seek to fight sin. As we seek to live for him. Let's pray. Father, there is so much evidence in our lives that we should be counted as part of a wicked and adulterous generation but by your grace and the faith that you have given to us, we are included in your family. Father, help us to continue to live out faith in the small everyday moments of everyday life. Lord, help us to continue to repent of sin, to turn to you, to know your forgiveness. Lord, even in the face of opposition that may come lord let us continue to believe for jesus stayed the course and jesus has given us the great sign that he died and rose again lord not that we might be condemned but that we might be saved to life now and forever father we praise you for jesus and in his name we pray amen